Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I hope that you are doing well, as I'm sure you already have. We'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to, to, to be this morning. And actually, we'll be in Nehemiah 8 for just a, for a couple of, of weeks. So just a quick, uh, um, a quick recap of the events of what's happening in Nehemiah. The walls have now been built. We've been getting up to that point for so long now, it seems. And now that the walls are built, we see a shift that takes place in the text, particularly starting last week. We saw in chapter 7 that now there's this onward point in the people, or at least from the temple, by the leaders, particularly Nehemiah, to rebuild uh, renew and rebuild not only the city to the glory of God, but also the people to the glory of God. The whole point of rebuilding this city was for the rebuilding of God's people. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah's prayer to God when he hears of the news of the condition of the city is not just about the condition of the city. It's about the condition of God's people. And so now the rebuilding of God's people is beginning in Nehemiah chapter 7 and will continue through the rest of the book. Last week we saw he looked back to the genealogy that came to us uh, from the, the, uh, the first group that came back into Jerusalem 90 years earlier led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. So 90 years earlier, but he's recording this from Ezra chapter 2, or recalling it to the people, so that the people would hear and know that this is what God has done, and God has done this to set us apart as a people, his people, a holy nation to the glory of his name. This morning, as we move into chapter 8, this rebuilding of God's people will continue but it will continue in a very dramatic scene, a very dramatic way. Chapter 8 is a fantastic chapter, and I'm looking forward to not only preaching this morning to you, but the next couple weeks as we go through chapter 8. So a few things that I want you to notice about this dramatic scene in Nehemiah 8. First, I want you to notice that Nehemiah writes chapter 8 no longer in the first person, right? So previously it's all been, been I, right? And now it's not. In fact, in chapter 8, we don't even see Nehemiah say we or him, meaning speaking of him, or even his name is mentioned. However, we see the handprints and the fingerprints of Nehemiah's leadership throughout chapter 8. Second, you'll notice very quickly someone comes back onto the scene that is very familiar to us. And when you hear his name, I want you to ask yourself, where has this man been? Why hasn't he been named in the text? Where has he been? And hopefully we'll answer that question as well. And lastly, I want you to ask yourself, what does this event sound and look a lot like? Or at least it should sound and look a lot like. And I believe with the answer to that question, you will be blessed and surprised by, by this. 
This is a wonderful passage, and, and to me it's one of those very few and rare proud moments in the nation of Israel and the, and the people of the Jews and the history of the, of the Jews. But even more than that for them is what it shows to us, the magnitude of the importance of God's word given to his people for his people so that they would know him. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8, and we will start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses so that the Lord that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square from the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive, to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shemaiah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah, and on his right hand, Pedadiah, Mishael, Mikshah, Hashum, Hashabadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam, on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherbiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabathia, Hodiah, Masiah, Keleta, Azera, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. What, what is important to you? It's a pretty big, broad, open-ended question, and we'll have, we could have several answers to that. Family, husbands, wives, our children, grandchildren, for some even their great-grandchildren, friends, health, fitness, business, career, education, if you're still getting one, your home investments, 
talents, hobbies. I'm sure there's much more. All these things that are important to you. Now, this wasn't a trick question. I'm not going to throw a gotcha at you. But I intentionally didn't put in that list something that should be very important to all of us, and that is the church. It's not a gotcha moment. Didn't trick you there. The church is to be very important to all of those who are Christians. Christians are to be a part of the body of Christ. It's members. The church is its members. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is what who Christ died for. And especially the local church. In the local church, it's where we see everything in the Scripture lived out. It's where we see everything in the Scripture symbolized and intensified within the body of Christ. If you're reading our new small group book on Wednesday nights, Corporate Worship, that's what this book is all about, that we're reading together. If the church, being the church, is important because we are the church, then what should be important to the church? What should be important corporately as the body of Christ? What should we value? What should we prioritize? What should we deem as, as utmost together? And especially as we gather. It's not the building. We prioritize, however, people, each other, the members. We prioritize gathering, coming together, that this is important. We value this. We, we need this. We need to be together. Worshiping and singing. The ordinances will be taking the Lord's Supper later. Some tradition and history. Fellowship. A little bit of food later. Discipleship. Finances, prayer, missions, and evangelism. Our doctrine and our theology. Our covenant and our beliefs. All of those are a yes. Those are very important to us. But how do we know those things are important? How do we know how to pray? How do we know how to disciple and do discipleship? How do we know how to fellowship? How do we know how to be in covenant or what to sing or how to worship and how to gather, how to practice the ordinances? How do we know what in our history is important? How do we know what to believe? And on and on we could go. How do we know to do those things and how to do those things? Brothers and sisters, what we value, what we treasure, and what we prioritize in our church and with each gathering, and I hope that this is what shines through with each gathering, is the Word of God. That is what we prioritize, that is what we treasure. The word of God. We have already sung this morning. Your word alone is solid ground. The mighty rock on which we build. In every line, truth is found. 
In every page, glory is filled. Now, is that just frivolous, poetic language? Well, it's certainly poetic. When we say, your word alone, you mean nothing else is on the same level as your word alone? A rock on which we build our lives? The foundation of all truth is found in in, in God's word alone? His glory is seen and found in every word, including the list last week? I mean, is this glory there in every page? Yes. Yes. And yes. Brothers and sisters, we do not say this. We do not sing this. We do not believe this merely because it is tradition. We do not sing these things and do these things because it sounds good or because it sounds right or because we have come to believe some fake thing that some guys have just made up or because we're dopes. But we confess this truth because it is true that this is God's Word. That God Himself the God, the only God, the creator and maker and sustainer of all the universe that he has clearly spoken to us in his word. God has revealed himself to us. He has shown us what he is like, who he is like. He has shown us his character and his nature. God has shown us who we are. God has shown us what we need. God has shown us how we should live. God has shown us how we can be reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore we believe in His Word fully. Sola Scriptura, God's Word alone, is our authority, rightly, divinely inspired sufficient for salvation and for sanctification and for all godliness and righteousness. We believe that it is completely inerrant without error. God's word is very important to us. Brothers and sisters, the passage that we have read this morning holds God's word in such a high esteem. The scriptures are held up. The standard for God's people to know God and to know who they are before him. This morning I want to show you three ways from Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8 of how God's word was held in such high esteem and how we as the church, God's people, are to do the same. And they're very simple. They're very ordinary. But they're glorious. First, I want to show you their priority. The priority of hearing the word of God read. 
did you happen to catch that when we read the passage? The people gathered. And we see this phrase that they gathered as, as one man once again. They gathered as one man, and what did they want? They wanted to hear God's word read to them. They wanted to hear God's word read. I remember one time going to a, a youth leaders conference years back, and there was one speaker, I don't remember who he was. All I remember was that he introduced himself and sort of what he was about to do, and then he simply opened his Bible, and I believe it was the Gospel of Mark, and for the next 45 minutes or so, he just read the Gospel of Mark over this conference. I remember my friend and I, who I was with, my buddy Mike, pastor up in Bristow, Virginia, we prayed for a couple weeks back, I believe. I remember him and I sitting together, and we just thought how different that was. We'd never seen anybody do that at a conference before. And yet how refreshing it was that for such amount of time, we just sat under just the reading of God's word together. And it was refreshing in a sense because a lot of the speakers at this particular conference merely used God's word as just a tool. That it was just a means to an end to them. It was to, to show the various tips of, 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 about how current youth issues and things that are going on with youth and students and how you can be a better youth pastor with these particular scriptures or or certain tips on how you can do ministry better and be a better leader. And they were using God's word in, in that way. And then I remember at the, the same conference, right after that, we went and had lunch, and then there was breakout sessions afterwards. We, we sat at this breakout session, and there was this lady that was next to us, and, and, and she was telling her friend that she was going to skip the next sessions of the conference, the main conference, because she was astounded that the conference would let some guy stand up and just read God's word the whole time. The audacity of reading the Bible. Here in Nehemiah 8, that is exactly what God's people desire. The reading of God's word. A mark of being God's people is a desire to have his word, to, to want his, his word. That we want to hear from him. God's people want to hear from, from God. And they know where God is revealed in his word. And they showed that in different ways, in different ways that they prioritized that. Number one, they showed it in the priority of planning. The priority of, of planning from all along of, their, of this gathering. This isn't, wasn't spontaneous, but I believe that this was, this was planned, that this was going to happen, especially by leaders like Nehemiah. It says in verse 4 that Ezra, ding, 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 there's the guy we know. Ezra stood on this, this wooden platform that was made directly for this purpose to be put in front of all the people and to deliver God's word to his people. And on this platform wasn't just him, 
but 13 other dudes. This wasn't just an ordinary platform. This was a huge platform, a platform that wasn't built in a day. This was a plan. They were planning to bring God's word to God's people. And especially, take note of this, we will in a couple weeks, of the timing of this. In the seventh month, the most important month of the Jewish calendar, where they get down and party. And festival after festival, Passover and such take place. So this platform was being built simultaneously with the walls. And why? Because the people didn't need just walls. They needed God's word as well. So we see the priority of planning. Second, we see the the priority of inclusion. The priority of inclusion that all the people gather together as one man in the square before the water gate. Now, this is very significant language of unity. The many becoming one, one body, under the word of God, one body. And we're not just talking about men. We're talking about men, women, and children were to be part of them. That is emphasized. In fact, it's said twice, once in verse 2, once in verse 3. That everyone was there. Man, woman, child. It was a priority that everyone was there. The call was out. Everyone over the age of Calvin and Ezekiel, gather. Be here. Come. Hear. Drink from the word of God and be fed. Everyone gathered as they could. A huge assembly of people. And next we see why they gather now, right? The priority of the public reading of God's word. The public reading of God's word. This unified assembly asked Ezra to come. They asked Ezra to come. This is Ezra, who we've known as the the scribe and the, the priest, right? We studied the book of Ezra before Nehemiah, the scribe and the priest who led this another group of exiles back into the land before Nehemiah. And what was Ezra's priority? What was God calling Ezra to do? Do you remember? It was to be a teacher, for him to study God's word and then to teach others to study God's word, to proclaim God's word, to call the people to repent of their sin as he did. And so here's Ezra for the past 13 years or so. We can assume Ezra has been faithfully studying scripture and teaching the scripture to the point now where all of God's people want to hear his word read by him. And he stands on that platform made for this moment in verse 5 and says, And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. He opened the book, 
literally, because these were massive scrolls. Massive scrolls that they, that they rolled out before them and began reading them. That's maybe why there was the 13 dudes on the stage to help him, because these things were huge. Bring me the next one. And they read from them. Listen, they read from them from early morning, which means before 9 a.m., to midday. And you thought I preached long. That's about six hours. If you read the first five books of the Bible, that's, and if you're a good reader, it'd take you about 12 hours to do. It shows you how far they probably got. The priority of the people of God was to do what? To sit under the reading of God's word. And why? So that they could understand it. They wanted to understand it. They wanted to understand God. Can we understand, can we see the significance of what's happening here? First of all, the rarity of this kind of occasion. What, maybe three times in all of the Old Testament? Do we see God's people with this kind of earnest desire to hear his word read over them? We see this within the church, the significance of the church, particularly in Acts, when they sat under the apostles' teaching, desiring to hear God's word. The significance and the priority of reading the scriptures to the people of God. And yet how often it is neglected, withheld for other things. And yet by example in scripture, especially from Nehemiah 8, we are commanded and shown as God's people to read from God's from his word, from his Bible, in corporate worship when we gather to read from his word. It isn't just an element or a piece of a service or a gathering that is to be added on special occasions like Christmas or Easter, but it is to be a priority of the church to always be a part of every time the church gathers as his people on the Lord's day. If we believe the scriptures, as we said from the beginning, that they are what they say they are, and what we confess that they are, and what we have sung what they are, the word of God, then why wouldn't God's people want them as much as possible when we are all together gathered for worship? Why would we trade them for something else? God has given us his word as a means of grace to read them publicly. And as often as a way of God speaking directly to you and directly to me, in the word of God, the apostle Paul he exhorts the, the young pastor and elder Timothy that as he is leading the church, he is to set an example to them and, and speak 
teaching conduct and love and faith and purity, but also he is to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We read the Scripture because we believe the Scripture. We prioritize the public reading of Scripture because we know, once again, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the church may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We believe as the church for ages has read from the scripture because we believe that even reading from them that God's word will not return void. Second, I want you to see the necessity for clear teaching that gives clear understanding. So we just read or just established that the plan the purpose of this event was to bring God's word as back to a central place within the people, the people of Israel. And they showed it by calling Ezra, the scribe, and the priest to come and, and to read the, 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 read the scriptures. Down in verse 7, we see the, the people, people respond, and we'll talk about that in just a, just a few moments. And how there's a, another list of guys, these 13 guys who were Levites, who had the task of helping the people understand the law. After reading, they came to understanding. How did they come to an understanding? Well, there were these Levites. You see that list there, 13. These, these Levites who have been set apart to take the role of interpreter and teacher, and preacher. Now, I don't know this 100%, but back in Ezra, if you remember when Ezra was to lead the people back into, back into the land, do you remember that the crew he was going to take, that there was no Levites that came? Until he had to go ask this other guy, hey, we need Levites, man. We can't do this without Levites. And then there was a group of Levites that came. I can only imagine then that for the next 13 years, what did Ezra do with those Levites? He poured into them. He discipled them. He showed them how to understand God's word. That's what he said he was going to do. That was his whole priority. And so at this moment now, there's these Levites that are ready to do what? To preach. To teach God's word. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly they gave a sense so that the people understood the reading. Now the phrase gave a sense in verse 8 has been debated and translated differently with different translations of the Bible. Now one of the interpretations, and I think this is a, is a good one and is right, is that one of the interpretations says that it, that it translated for them, meaning 
a group of people, a generation of people that grew up in Persia, right, was a people in a Persia land and kingdom. They understood Aramaic. They didn't understand Hebrew. And so it was a way of reinterpreting or interpreting from, from Hebrew to Aramaic so that they would understand. And I think that that's absolutely true. I think that that's what these guys were doing. They were interpreting the language for them, the spoken language to these people. However, I believe as well that Ezra and these Levites, they helped the people understand, as what the, e, the ESV says, to give them a sense of what these things mean. So not only a translation, but also interpretation so that they would understand what they are hearing. The goal wasn't just translation. The goal was interpretation that would bring about understanding. And as it says, understanding that was clear. Clear for everyone in the congregation. Brothers and sisters, I believe what we see here in this passage is what we seek to practice today. And that is the faithful exposition of Scripture. From this passage, we see the necessity of the exposition of Scripture in preaching for clear and right understanding. Expository preaching's primary concern is to expose the meaning of the text, the authorial intent, the biblical context within biblical theology and right theology, doctrine, so that as the sermon then will help its hearers understand clearly, clearly the purpose of the passage and that they would understand God more clearly and understand their relationship with him. Simply defined, the point of the sermon is the point of the text. The concern for this kind of preaching and teaching is what ignited the Reformation in the 16th century. The Catholic Church conducted all of its services and masses in Latin, which nobody understood. It would be like us doing that today. None of us would understand what in the world was going on unless you were very well educated. And I mean very well educated because some of the priests, in fact, this is a testimony of so many, that so many of the priests didn't know Latin themselves. They just memorized the services and the lines that they were doing and then just performed them before the people and had no idea what they were saying or what they were doing. This clear neglect inspired guys like Jan Hus to preach in the language of the people. It got him killed. It inspired guys like John Wycliffe and William Tyndall to bring about a translation in the Bible in, in English that others that we could read and people could read. It got him killed. The reformers, notably Martin Luther and John Calvin, understood the necessity within the church to preach God's word, not only in the language that people could understand, but that 
They would preach the gospel in a way that they would understand what the Bible is clearly saying to them. The Reformation not only recovered salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but it recovered the sole authority of Christianity in Scripture alone. And therefore, the necessity then came out within the churches of expository preaching. And the Reformers, they, they exemplified it. They taught it to others. They trained up others to teach and preach God's Word. They wrote that preachers needed to expound the true meaning of God's Word and of the Bible and make it clear so that the people of God could understand it. Understanding is certainly the aim in our preaching and in our teaching. We want all of you, all of the hearers of God's Word, proclaimed to understand what the passage means. And what it means for you and for us in faith and for the repentance of sin. True preaching is letting God's word speak for itself. As many of you know, biblical expositional preaching is rare. And it's hard to find in many local churches. And the reason why, the reason why for that is the Bible tells us why. Because people don't want it. Many don't want it. They want sentimental topics of ethics. They want emotionalism. Or even a soft prosperity gospel. And because of that, they hire preachers to give them such. Itching ears acquire teachers to scratch them. What can Jesus do for me? But that's not what we are called to do as the church. And that is not what we will do in our church, and this church. We especially know that what we do on Sunday mornings to an outsider is boring. Right? To an outsider, this is boring. Right? To open up some dry, dusty, historical document and try to find something that applies to me. That's boring. I want new. I want to see the, the latest Tom Hanks movie clip on the screen and see how that applies to my life with the scripture verse upholding it, right? But to an unbeliever whose heart who has not been changed and has no affection for God's word, no wonder that is their response. It was my response when I was an unbeliever. I didn't want to go to church. I was bored. I didn't want to be a part of these things. I had no affections for these things. And yet, the very thing that I thought was boring 
is the very thing that brought me life. And that's brought us life. And to the one who comes who thinks that this is, this is boring, it's, it's what brings life to you. The Word of God would, is what, when it's preached and proclaimed or even read, it's what brings us life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. This is the kind of preaching Jesus did. This is the kind of preaching that the apostles did. This is the kind of preaching that the early church fathers did. It is what the reformers recovered. It is what the Puritans did. And it's what we need because brothers and sisters, as they sat there longing for God's word underneath that platform, we sit under God's word knowing we need it. We need it. We're tired. We're weary. We're beat up. We're tempted by sin. We need you, God. And so we turn to his word. That prayer is answered right here. It's answered right here in his word. We need it to cultivate greater faith. We need the reading of the Scripture. We need the exposition of the Scripture. We need the right application of the Scripture. This is a means of grace to God's church because this is how the church is built up. You are built up by the Word of God and by His Holy Spirit illuminating it to us and giving life to us so that the inner man is transformed, made new, and being renewed by the power of the Word of God, we need right biblical expositional preaching of the Word of God. And we read... And we preach the word of God for the right understanding, right? That's the, that's the, the goal of, of expositional preaching. But also we read and we preach God's word because understanding brings doxology. Understanding brings worship of God. And this is our third point this morning. The importance of the people responding to God's word. Nehemiah chapter 8 is full of these people outwardly responding to, to God's word. But it's reading and it's exposition of scripture. And we'll see more of that even next week. In verse 3, it says, The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. No sleepy eyes. No one looking at their watches or their phones to check the time. We're trying to be distracted by something that's more entertaining. But they were attentive. They were attentive 
because there was nothing more important happening than the reading of God's Word for the next six hours. So hold on. Here we go. This particular point, brothers and sisters, teaches us something that goes right along with the second point. And that is that if expositional preaching is important and necessary, then so is good expositional listeners. Good expositional listeners. Preaching isn't just for us to, to receive, but preaching is for us to participate and how we lean into it, and how we pay attention, and we are attentive to God's Word. And so we pray for that desire. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We pray for strength. We pray for energy. We pray not to be distracted by the pitter-patter of little boy's feet next door. And they're dropping toys. But we all understand, we understand that temptation, don't we? And so we pray for one another that we all would be good expositional listeners. But also in verse 5, when Ezra opened up the book and he began to read, it says that all the people stood. They stood up for God's word. Why did they stand? Was it tradition? No. It was an honor and a reverence of God's holy word being delivered to them. Now, this isn't prescriptive, meaning it doesn't mean now, now this is a new command. Now we're all going to stand up every time we read, God, read God's word, and maybe we should. We can do some of that occasionally, and that would be good for us. I think this is more de descriptive. Descriptive of the posture of the hearts of the people that they were unified in their desire to hear God's word. And the posture of humility that this is God's word and I'm putting myself under God's word, that I need God's word. When we come to God's word, whether we are studying it at home by ourselves or the coffee shop or whatever, or we're with the church, we must come humbly. We must come needy. We need it. It's not the other way around. God's word doesn't need us. We need it. And when Ezra prayed, he blessed the Lord. I would have loved to have heard that prayer. Or at least read that prayer. A prayer certainly of adoration. A prayer of thanksgiving. It says that he blessed the Lord. And then we hear the people's response. Amen. Amen. Which means we agree. That is for certain. That's true. Let it be done. And they said this because they were certain 
and they agreed in the blessing and the worship of God. That they were thankful for God for his word. Their hearts, their minds, their affections were stirred by God's word to, to worship him, to adore him. And their postures changed again in the text. It says that they, that they lifted their hands and they bowed their heads to the ground and again in humility, in reverence, in repentance, and in joy of God. Understanding the word of God and preaching and teaching is the goal, but doxology should be the fruit in all of us. This is why the scripture must be at the center of all that we do. The reading, the preaching that exalts God because he is the point of everything. He is the point of the Bible. He is the point of everything. And we are to be drawn into that through the reading and through the preaching of God's word. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this excitational exposition. That exposition that brings about the exaltation of God. When the word of God is faithfully read and preached, then those that hear will exalt Christ, who is at the heart of the Bible. Now let me show you. Let me show you what I mean. God created the world by his word. God created and called out Abraham by his word. God created his people by his word at Mount Sinai. God gave, or God's word was given and preached in the valley of dry bones. And it breathed life into the dead. And God sent his son, who himself is the word of God made flesh who took on flesh and died for the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in him. He is the word of God. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says that they built this platform for Ezra to stand and read from with these other guys. And they put this platform, brothers and sisters, not outside of the temple, but they put it in front of the water gate. The water gate is a gate, the walls that they just built, is exactly what it is named for. It is the place of the source of water for all of the city of Jerusalem. And as we know, water is survival. Water is life. Water is necessary for flourishing. And this whole time, God's word's being read, this platform's there, and they're looking at Ezra, and behind them is the water gate where the water lies. And God's word was being washed over them as if someone opened the gate and was washing over 
them. And they all responded like it was a refreshing, living water washing over them. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that if you knew who I was, you would be asking for living water that only I could give. Well, that confused her. There's more to that story. In John chapter 7, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. Do you hear what Jesus is saying about himself? That he's the word of God, as John tells us in John chapter 1. He says to the woman that if you ask of me, I will give you living water. He says that if you believe in me, there will be, then come and drink, that rivers of living water will flow through you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying about himself and about the word of God and what the word of God does? It's like living waters that flows through us. Psalm 23, I think he's referring a lot to Psalm 23, where the psalmist says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside what? Still waters. The still waters of Psalm 23, speaking to the peace that we come in Christ, the peace and rest that he gives to all who ask. And to pull the thread through all the way through now the Bible to Revelation chapter 7. As God's people gather in Revelation chapter 7. Gather just like what we see in Nehemiah 8. There's a huge multitude of people from every tribe in every nation. And they're worshiping the Lamb of God. One of the elders tells John this. He says, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Psalm 23. And he will guide them to what? To springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 8, they might not have understood all that was happening there that day. And they may not have understood why exactly they're in front of the water gates. But certainly, God's word washes over us. You see, we don't need gates in front of us to remind us of the power of God's word. We don't need platforms to remind us of the power of God's word. We're all on the same platform together. He has given us his word. His word is right in front of us. God has given us his word that we may know him, that we may be reconciled through him and through his reconciliation and by his reconciliation, the work that he does, then we would worship and we would delight in him. Does the truth of what God's word proclaims to you cause you to worship him? I started off this morning asking the simple question, what is important to you, and then we asked what is important to the church. 
This morning's sermon has been about the priority, the necessity, and the importance of God's word for God's people. That cannot be understated and that it cannot be forgotten. A Mark Dever quote that I think I use often is, is that the word of God shapes the people of God. It's what shapes us. It's everything to us. But it's not everything to us because it's a magical book or that it imparts some kind of special grace because you have one in your hand or in your car or you have a couple at home. No, the word of God is everything to us because it shows us God. It tells us and shows us Christ. And that knowing God through his word shapes us according to how God has created and designed life and relationship with him. What is the word of God to you this morning? Is it a priority for you in gathering with God's people to hear it read, to hear it sung, to hear it seen, to hear it tasted, to hear it proclaimed? Do you desire to understand it clearly through expository preaching? And do you understand the importance of your worship in response to God's word? I hope that this morning, if you haven't come to understand or believe these things about God's word, that you have now. And now you can understand the blessings and the joy of God's word as the people in Nehemiah 8 did. If you already understand this and you already believe this, then may your heart with mine and with our voices as the people of God did in Nehemiah 8 when God's word was read and Ezra blessed the people, their response should be as ours. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are truly grateful, God, for your kindness to us by giving us your word, by delivering it to us. You have revealed it to us. You have given it to us. And, oh, Lord, we have come to believe that it is true. And we know it's right. And that we know that it's for us and for your church. And so, Father, may we keep it in its place before us. For all understanding, for all knowledge of you. For all of our worship, may it be guided by your word. Help us to come to believe it more and understand it more clearly through the reading and through the preaching and through our worship. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your kindness. And may we respond now this morning for your glory. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.